0: Okay, ready, set, go. We are operating again one more time, I guess. November the 22nd, 2015, lecture discussion number 221 on the Book of Romans. And if you have been attuned to the news media this past week, you would have noticed the ever-present angst that has characterized their performances. And yes, I intended to say performances. What is portrayed, as everyone now knows, is no longer in dispute. What is uh, portrayed as news, it currently is best described as a prejudiced script, read by actors. I will give a little political analysis here. The people that are reading the news, I think, sometimes this is harsh. But my goodness. The lack of wisdom that is in the news media, especially the people on the forefront of it, the presenters. Where do you get so many people that are this dumb? I don't, I have a theory, by the way, the more attractive you are, no offense, the less intelligent you are. Hence, I must be a genius. But I really, how can you? How can you watch this? Anyway, the news is is now just read by actors under the pretense of relaying information. Actual, unskewed news reporting no longer occurs. The vast majority of American journalists, journalism, uh, has long ago decided to advocate for socialism, progressivism, communism, atheism, pretty much all the isms, monism, secularism, picanism, which makes their... Anxiety over the recent terrorist attacks in Paris, more so of interest. Watching the parade of atheists display shock and confusion over the barbarism over, uh, that has been perpetrated by the ISIS terrorists, that's quite revelatory. I'm always fascinated by these kinds of discussions because they should be elementary. Elementary. These are the kinds of things that everyone should have grasped in elementary school. Those of us who are minimally biblically literate know that evil exists. I think every child knows that evil exists. To be shocked by the appearance of evil is stunning to me. We know that evil exists and why evil exists if you took a cursory read of the Bible. But the atheist is logically perplexed by evil being manifested, evil manifesting, because this ultimately resolves into a discussion of death and therefore life, evil and goodness, death and life. It's not an accident that those are paired. The Islamic state is distinguished, its singular attribute is death. That's what it does. It's a death cult. It focuses on death. Everything about it is death. It's permeated in death. By death, it's drenched in blood of its victims. I have no expectation that ISIS will ever be anything but evil. It will not be anything but evil. It wants to stay evil and be evil. All it will do is evil. Always. And when you are evil, evil seeks death. Scripture makes such obvious, tells us why even. However, to the atheist... To apparently all of the news media in operation today, I shouldn't say all, I'm sure out of the tens of thousands of journalists, there's one with a brain. I just haven't met them yet. Hopefully they'll show up soon. To the atheist, evil is a relative term, you see. It's, 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 there's indistinguishable degrees of evil. You, they have put evil so close together that, that you cannot, there's no numer- numerical distinction. You can't plot evil on a graph uh, because they have made it so small in the sense that everything is so close together. Again, however, it is a relative term to them. But the truth is, in fact, actually, the atheist does not and cannot conceive of the, even the existence of evil. They won't allow the discussion, typically, because, you see, if the atheist concedes that there is evil, then he's now in an impossible-to-avoid situation. If he says that, yes, ISIS is evil, then he has to now agree that something else is something else. What does he have to now concede? Yes, he has to concede goodness exists now. If he says there is evil, then there must be goodness. Absolutely true. And the presence of goodness will require a defining now of goodness, which is defined as a separation from evil, to which that which is good must be set apart from that which is evil. And so we have this definitive distinction now that's measurable. We have an absolutism. To the atheist, that is an intolerable situation, because to the atheist there is only behaviors. And all behaviors are effectively equal. All behaviors to the atheist reside within the same stratum. None can be categorized as good or evil, they can only be behaviors. Some behaviors may have some benefit, but it isn't good, it's just happenstance if they do. So what am I talking about again? Of course, I'm talking about little Bonnie's philosophical zombies. And that's what we're doing, little Bonnie's zombies. Pardon me? Well, you see, philosophical zombies are very valuable logically because you will see the failure intellectually of these positions that are presented to you. If you're going to discuss evil, you have automatically entered into a discussion of good. You cannot separate them. If one exists, the other does. So they say no good exists, right? Evolution is amoral, not immoral. There is no morality in evolutionary philosophy. So you start saying, if you get up as an evolutionary atheist and say ISIS is evil, then you have now conceded that good exists. And that is something they will not tolerate. And that gets us, as I said, to Little Bonnie's philosophical zombies. They are only zombies. Little Bonnie's zombies are only zombies. Being only zombies, that means they possess no consciousness, no awareness. They just zombie about. That is exactly what the evolutionary philosophers say about all humanity. There's no consciousness. There's no awareness. There's no good. There's no evil. All there are are behaviors. That is taught in every school, in every academic setting in the country as fact. All are zombies. The evolutionary, evolutionist assigns all of humanity into that state. Consciousness, they will say, is illusionary. You think you have consciousness, but you don't. You're fooled into thinking you have consciousness. You're only fooling yourself. You're delusional. It's a fabrication consciousness is, they say to you. Free will, therefore, is a myth. All of that is basic, monistic, evolutionary philosophy, as you know. So, when the Islamic State slaughters innocents as they choose, the news media now is confronted with how are they going to talk about this? What are they going to call it? Behaviors? No. They're going to call it evil. Because if they call it behaviors, what do normal people now say to them? You're idiots. Because obviously this is evil. Slaughtering children, crucifying children, beheading children, that's evil. And as soon as the news media is confronted with the origin of evil, they are now confronted with the origin of good. And that is a topic they wish to avoid. Because if there is goodness, then where is its origin? Consistency with monistic precepts would require that academia and its media discard judgment on the acts of those who have no impending accountability. They don't do that. They are announcing every day that ISIS is wicked and that ISIS is willfully choosing wickedness. That's a violation of their zombie concepts. Zombies have no free will. Zombies can't choose. Zombies only have behavior. Behavior can't be judged. So when I hear them do that, I respond, how can you do this? How can this be that Isis is wicked in your philosophy? How can an evolutionary process originate evil or even define evil? But I expect evolution to not define evil. Why is that? Because evolution, just like Isis, is a death. It's soaked in blood, soaked in death. One death system is, is not anxious to judge another death system. If I begin to judge ISIS for their evil, then I have to now look at my also death-based system and philosophy. How do I define it? Unsurprising that evolution is a death-based system. What is surprising is that the church embraces a death-based system as some kind of uh, something that God has used to produce life. And that's just stunningly illogical and ridiculous. Anyway, for today, know every time that somebody brings up the presence of evil, declares something to be evil, defines something as evil, that will demand that they also pair it with, attach it with, the existence of good, and see if they do it. They don't. It's very easy for them to say ISIS is evil, but they never say God is good. So all you have to do when you uh, when you get in one of these kinds of discussions, which I think are going to continue, as you know, the world is a absolute mess, not seen since the advent of World War II. I'm sure that the feelings that we are having and the feelings and the things that we are watching, the people of World War II, the 1930s, will say to us, that is how we thought. That is how we felt. Okay. Where did we leave off? That's right. The great list. Let me put this in a better position. The list here on the board, the holy reversible dry erase board platinum model that is still highly functional in spite of all of its uh, massive amount of use. So we are in Leviticus chapter 2, and I am attempting to get you all to speak Leviticus. Uh, That is not simple, and it's not something that is common, and most people have no interest at all in learning how to speak Leviticus. They look at that Leviticus and they go, I don't even want to read it. I don't want to try to understand it. It has absolutely no interest to me at all. And I under—I get that. Speaking Leviticus is my way of describing uh, the search for Christ that is in Leviticus. And in this particular case, specifically, uh, the second of the five offerings are the grain offering or the meal offering. But in fact, I call it all the time the bloodless offering. So there is Leviticus broken down in pieces as best we can do trying to understand what God is saying in Leviticus. It's a language. You have to translate it. And You have all of these pieces, and you assign meanings to those pieces that God assigns. You try to figure out what he means by fine flour, what he means by oil, why he wants you to pour the oil. You know, you don't have to pour the oil, right? You could have the oil in a basin and you could take the grain and put the grain in the oil. That's not what he wants. He wants you to pour the oil over the grain. Why? Why is it that only the priesthood, Aaron's sons, can have a portion of it? What is the meaning of frankincense? Why is the frankincense included by the court of Daniel when they come and find the child that is God himself? What is the purpose of fire what is the definition of fire? All of those things can be defined. They're in nice order and they will give you, if you wish to think of it this way, an explanation, a, a translation. They will um, teach you something. And that what they will teach you is an incredible portrait of Christ. So speaking Leviticus is my way of describing the search for Christ in the bloodless offering specifically here. And so far, all we've really figured out, or addressed, anyway, we haven't completely figured it out. Last week, we figured out as best we could in the time allotted, salt, oil, and frankincense. What God means, why he put them in this pattern, and why he wanted you to do, or wanted the priesthood to do exactly what they did. We noted that oil and frankincense are paired together. So you find frankincense, and you find oil, and we notice that there's this pairing of these two. So when you find one, you find the other. Keep that in mind. God likes to put things in groups of two. Groups of seven, groups of three, but groups of two, or pairs of two, are very common. So recognize that he put them together for a purpose. He didn't have to put oil with frankincense, he did. And we began to discuss salt, where is salt right here? Salt is all over this. So I ask the obvious question, what is salt paired to? Because it is paired to something on that list. Okay, salt is essential as we went last week. It cannot be excluded from the grain offering. It cannot You cannot have the grain offering without salt. Don't even consider ever putting a grain offering on the altar unless there is salt in it. The oil soaks every aspect. You pour it all over the grain offering. It soaks it. The frankincense is the smoke, the ascending smoke that reaches the throne of God, provides the sweet aroma. He wants... To smell this, if you will. He tells you to put it all together, put it on his altar, and he wants to smell it. And the smoke rises up to his throne room, if you, throne room, if you wish to think of it that way. Obviously, who is the salt that cannot be omitted? Now, obviously, that is Christ. Christ is that which cannot be omitted from what? You cannot eliminate Christ from what? Yeah, salvation. You do not have salvation unless you have Christ. Christ's name means salvation, right? We know that? So here's the here's the big profound statement. Salvation requires salvation. Duh. But it seems really difficult for people. When God says salt in the context of the grain offering, he's saying, Christ, do not omit the salt. You cannot have salvation. The only way this produces a sweet smell to me is if the salt is in it, the salt is Christ. There is none saved apart from the salt, apart from the blood of Christ. No, not one. How happy does that make people? They hate that. And it's in the, it's everywhere in the Bible. And especially here in Leviticus. Now the oil, last week I talked about the oil bringing light to the wick. The wick in a lamp. Oil brings light. The wick can't burn. It will burn. It will burn quickly and out and produce no light. It's just useless without light. So, that which causes the wick to have light to burn, to to demonstrate uh, uh, brightness, that is the oil. So... You see the picture of Christ again. If the wick is dead and burned out and useless without the oil, and the oil causes the wick, causes the skin, causes the food to taste, the skin to rejuvenate, that is a picture of Christ's resurrection, isn't it? His resurrection, he is, he says, I am the only resurrection, I am the resurrector. The one who brings life to the wick, brings light to the dead. I am the one that quickens. So, oil, salt, both speak of Christ. Now, I attached them to other things last week, as you know, because they are very complicated. The ascending frankincense, the ascending smoke that brings sweetness to God is what brings sweetness to God. The only one thing that can bring sweetness to him. The, sweetness, that which, that the smoke that ascends is testimony of a what? Of an accepted offering, isn't it? What is the offering about? Salvation. So that ascending smoke is Christ again. He is the pillar of cloud. He's the smoke. He's the, also the pillar of fire. 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 What does fire pair to on that list? All of that took us to the worm. Did I write worm on the board last week? I did not. All of that took us to the worm of Mark 9. Uh, Worms are amazing. One of the most intriguing symbols in Scripture, 947 through 49 of Mark is worms. Uh, as you know, Christ on the cross says, I am the worm. And I've many times said he's speaking about the crimson worm of Jonah. But uh, as you know, he's God. And whenever he uses a word, does he know he uses it? Duh. So he would know that there's going to be some one-eyed fat man somewhere someday that'll go, do I got to go out and collect all the worms in all the Bible?" Put them all together to see if I can figure out what a worm is to God when he puts it in Leviticus. Because ultimately, he puts it in Leviticus in the sense that it takes us to Mark 9.47. We'll get to that in a minute. What gets us to Mark 9.47, by the way, is salt. So, again, we'll have to deal with worms and the worms. Just know that the, uh, speaking Leviticus. Uh, let me repeat that a little bit. How many Christians have any understanding of what's going on in the book of Leviticus, percentage-wise? I, I don't think you. I think it's almost zero. I have found some Germans in the 17th and the 18th centuries that were un- unbelievable what they understood about Leviticus. Church today has no concept of Leviticus. Every single person that I give a Leviticus test to would flunk it. I think that is a horrible condition, which is why the church is such a catastrophic fireball today. And there's nothing I can do, nothing you can do, nothing anyone can do to get people interested in Leviticus it is something that is inside you. You just say to yourself, I want to know the most difficult material I can learn in the Bible. I want to stand before the throne and be able to speak Leviticus. Uh, that's an individual choice. The church is helpless and also disinterested. and That is a great tragedy. Okay, first, know the Christology. I just ran through the Christology very quickly right there. The Christness in it. Now, it's then once you have that, that uh, the salt, the oil, and the frankincense, and you've got all of that together, then you can proceed to the other secondary elements as we covered last Sunday. Uh, for example, whenever I talk about salt, I have to talk about Lot's wife. Lot's wife and salt are bang, they're pounded together. You almost cannot separate salt from Lot's wife. In fact, I don't believe you can. The gifts of the Magi, as I said, Whenever you're talking about frankincense, you've got to understand. You don't got to, but you need to know about the Daniel court, those men that came, why they brought frankincense, frankincense, embalming fluid, and gold. And then, of course, any time you're in a discussion about oil and its impact on wicks, and its impact on skin and its impact on food. One of the first places you're going to go is the parable of the ten virgins, where I have oil in wicks again, or no oil in wicks. So those are the secondary. First, get the cross, to the Christology, then proceed to those others. They will help you understand the Christology at a deeper level. And no time to recount all those things again. I covered them briefly last Sunday, and maybe as I close this particular section in a few weeks, I'll hit them again. But Let's, uh, let's uh, do what's next, I think. And that's worms. Worms are astonishing. So now we're at the worm that does not die. Mark nine forty-two through 50. So let's read that. Here we go. But whoever causes one of these little ones... Talking about children. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, guess what? Little ones believe in him. If you have a doctrine that is otherwise, if you think there's a daycare in the lake of fire, you're in so much trouble theologically, I don't even know where to start. But anyone who causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life crippled or maimed or lame rather than having two hands to go to hell. That word, by the way, is Gehenna. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to gehenna into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched and if your foot causes you to sin cut it off it is better that you enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched and if your eye causes you to sin Pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into Gehenna where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. There we go. There's your pairing of salt and fire. Salt is good. Defined as good, I have now defined salt as good. What makes, what is salt again? But if the salt loses its flavor, sorry. But if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourself and have peace with one another. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna spare you the burden of enduring me, enduring another list. I, I'm tempted to do it, but I'd have to erase this list. So you're going to have to create your own list this time. You can do it mentally. That's a really good idea, by the way. But uh, you, you notice this, the, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I've always, whenever I've read Mark 9, Mark 9, 42 through 50, I've always thought, this is a song. It certainly looks like a poem to me. How come we don't have a song, the title of the song, Their Worm Does Not Die? Someone should write that song. That would be a cool song. Probably need to be a gospel blues song. But, uh, but I've never seen a song. You can, you go ahead and write it and sing it yourselves. You don't need me. Uh, I would like some credit. Send me donuts. Their word, their, their worm does not die. It's incredible. We should probably, uh, Read Isaiah 66, uh, 24, because that's where it comes from. That is the last words, essentially, of the prophet Isaiah. The last thing he writes in his incredible prophecy, which is mostly about salvation, by the way, the salvation of the Jewish people. But he writes the last words, their worm does not die. That's how he ends it. It always fascinates me. The Lord God Almighty himself chose to repeat these words of Isaiah 66:24 and he did it three times. Now people dispute that. There you'll find some manuscripts that don't have it three times and I know all of that. Don't write me, please. But I think it's correct. Do it this way. Whoops. I dropped something. Ugh. Okay. So let's go to uh, Isaiah 66, 22 through 24. The final words Isaiah has written this amazing prophecy, and the last thing that he wants to put in it is the worm, their worm does not die. So we've got to figure that out. Why did God choose this? Obviously, he's the author of it, he uses Isaiah to write it. He wants to repeat it three times. That's something we have to figure out or endeavor to figure out. So let's go ahead and read Isaiah 66, 22 through 24. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make, which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord. So your descendants and your name remains and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, All flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. (coughs) Excuse me. Obviously, now, sum up to where we are to this point. Obviously, fire and salt are paired together, similar to oil and frankincense. And salt, as you know, is used to extinguish fire. Salt does not burn. We have this seasoned with fire back here in Mark. Notice that. And for everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt, So. Fire and salt and every is together to, to deal with. You have to get that seasoned with salt, seasoned with fire, uh, figured out. Uh, salt losing its flavor. What does that mean? If your first instinct is somehow um, you've, you can lose your salvation through that verse, then, of course, you're in the ditch. If you think somehow Christ can wear himself out, then you're in the ditch again. Uh, so what does it really mean? Salt can lose its flavor. Flavor, salt losing its flavor. What can that mean? Goodness can stop being goodness. Uh, obviously, that is not the case. Now, with Isaiah's concluding verses, we have Gehenna. Uh, and the same thing in Mark. When Christ says Gehenna, it is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell. The word there is Gehenna or the or Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom. Whenever I'm discussing Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom, I am now in the subject of who? That's right. I'm in the subject of King Josiah. Those of you on the internet that think that somebody answered that correctly, don't worry. They didn't. I pretend they did to intimidate you into thinking that they are way up on these kinds of things. But they didn't really. It's just kind of a trick of mine. King Josiah, when Hilkiah found the missing manuscript that is in the Ark of the Covenant, the chief priest, and he brought it eventually before Josiah, Josiah went into incredible despair because he realized that the nation of Israel was evil. And he went about getting rid of the evil. He destroyed the non-Levite priests. He went and killed them all. They were idolatrous. They were Baal worshipers. And he killed every one of them and he dumped them into Gehenna. That's where he put them. So Isaiah is referencing that and Christ is referencing Isaiah as well. Both of them, God himself is talking about hell And using the picture that is Josiah's heaping up of these non-Levite Jewish... See, you're not supposed to be a priest, right, if you're a non-Levite. So he hunted them all down, killed them all, threw them in a pile, thousands and thousands of them. And that is the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna. Now some think that that became a garbage dump as well. And that may be, but Mostly, it was a big pit of dead bodies. And Josiah did that. And you might remember what they were doing. What were those Levite priests doing? Non, Sorry, non-Levite priests. What were these Jewish priests who were not allowed to be priests, but had converted over to Baalism and were horribly pagan, what were they doing that God and, uh, and was... Stopping. Do you remember? Go ahead and answer. That's right. That's right. Bonnie in the front row. Big Bonnie as distinguished from Little Bonnie. Those priests were butchering children. That is why you see how it says, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck. So he is saying, "I am the God who instructed Josiah to stop the killing of children." And Josiah went and gathered them, as I said, "Stop this child sacrifice." You, you might remember. Now, there's two, there's lots of views on this stuff. No one can know for sure because, obviously, we don't have any videotape. But as archaeology begins to develop, Moloch is considered to be this Babylonian Baal god. And they would heat Moloch up to red-hot this statue, essentially. And these hands were literally at probably 2,000 degrees. And they would place an infant child into those hands of his idol and dance and celebrate the destruction of the child that's what they did and they did it constantly and god said no we're not going to do that allow that anymore and josiah slaughtered them he executed all of those priests and he ended the burning of children that is the context for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched that is the context of all of mark 9:42 Through fifty, That is the context of salt is good. That is the context for everyone will be seasoned with fire. Every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. That is the context. But if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Notice how I emphasize it. Have salt in yourself and have peace. All of that is under the context of what Josiah did to those priests to end the burning of children, the destruction and the killing of children. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, the little ones are saved, aren't they? King Josiah was astonishing. You've heard me say this. Let me reread what the Bible, what God says about Josiah. Now, before Josiah, there was no king like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after Josiah did any arise like Josiah. 2 Kings 23:25. Now, I eliminated the pronouns and put Josiah's name in there. People always ask me all the time, uh, what should I name my son? Well, Josiah would be a pretty good start. There's never been anybody like him as king of Israel. Never. Not before and not after. Not David, not Solomon, nobody. This is the highest level. Josiah. No one, no king like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might. So this was an extraordinary man. Jesus is referencing these child killers at Mark 9:42 42 through 48. They were to be an abhorrence. When you walked by that pile of bodies, you were abhorred by them. Their worm does not die. Their fire will never be quenched. This is creator God saying this. The book of Isaiah's final words are the words of God. And Jesus, again, declares himself, as he always does, to be God, to be our creator. He does it right here by quoting the words of Isaiah. So what is he saying? What is he saying by this? Well, clearly, the place of the wicked, the destruction of those who choose to reject Christ, will have two primary conditions. I'm asked often, what's the lake of fire going to be like? Well, two characteristics that we we will know. Their fire will never end, and their worm will never die. Think about this pile of bodies. What's happening to those decomposing bodies laying out in the sun? In Israel, thousands and thousands and thousands of them. What happened to them? The worms got them. Did I ever tell you the story, probably have. I only have so many stories. I'm out in the woods and it's dark, and I'm pretending to be a hunter, but I was really just a camper. We called it camping. eventually, and we're out in the woods, and we heard this sound, this crunching sound. Oh wow, we got something
1: nearby and
0: it's a little freaky. And we went towards the crunching sound and you could audibly hear it that was back when I could hear. It's really quiet out there. We had flashlights and we came upon a moose carcass and it was being devoured by maggots. And we heard the sounds of the maggots eating the moose carcass. And we decided that this is a really bad place to be in the dark in Alaska. Even though I am the most heavily armed pastor, perhaps, in the entire state. Nonetheless, uh, I said to my friends who were with me, this is a bad place to be, where maggots are eating carcasses. That's Gehenna. That is a picture of the lake of fire. Maggots eating carcasses. So, fire And worms are put together just like fire and salt are put together. So I have eternal fire and I have eternal worm. Their worm will never die, their fire will never end. I could say the both to the same, couldn't I? Their fire will never die, their worm will never die. Right? Both are eternal. Excuse me. Eternal fire, eternal worm. So ask some obvious question. What causes fire to end? This fire won't end, but a normal fire will end. What causes it to end? Excuse me. What's that? Yes, that's right. Runs out of fuel. What causes the maggots to stop eating the moose carcass? No more moose. What happens to maggots that don't have moose to eat? They die. These maggots, they're not going to ever die. Their maggot will never die, and their fire will never end. Fire burns out when it exhausts its fuel source. Likewise, maggots die when they have exhausted the dead flesh. And as I said, these are likely maggots, uh, by the way. So, the place of the evil dead is a place of where burning never stops and where worms eat. That's how Christ, God, is describing it. He said, Gehenna is hell, is the lake of fire, and it is like worms that never stop eating and fire that never runs out of fuel. The evil, therefore, the evil persons, let's just take ISIS, these, these fools that think they're going to go to some wonderful place where they're, Overwhelmed by uh, who knows what? Seventy, what are they thing? Seventy virgins. Just it's so so foolish. Uh, But no, they're not going there. They're going to a place where the fire never ends and their worm never stops eating. They're always on fire. The fire won't go out. Their fire won't go out. Isaiah says, and their worm is going to keep eating them. That is what hell is. The evil are never consumed, not by their worm and not by their fire. The wicked are always forever being eaten and forever on fire. And one would think that that would be a deterrent. One would suppose that a rational man would flee, would seek refuge from the wrath of God. That's what he says is in store for the wicked for the unbelievers he defines unbelief as wicked evil however is not rational romans 128 mankind instead is going to rush into that place mankind is is rushing running is s- striving to get to hell who thinks like this mostly everybody We can therefore surmise that hell is characterized by continued, continual degradation for those who choose this. See how I say that? You choose this. You have a free will choice to make in spite of those who will protest otherwise. Again evolutionary philosophers are on the side of some christians who believe there is no choice at all of any kind even of the smallest amount i will say to them we are arguing i believe over the degree of choice but accountability has a has a factor here we can we can i conclude that hell has this continual degradation those who choose it are choosing to place themselves in a, into a state of eternal mental darkness. You are going. You are becoming more and more evil. The worm continues to eat. The fire continues to burn. Eventually, evil is total. There is no goodness. That is how you know that the the Pharisee and Lazarus, the Pharisee in that position, the rich Pharisee and Lazarus, the poor beggar, that is how you know that everything that rich Pharisee is saying from hell, from Gehenna, is evil. He can't stop himself from being evil. His worm keeps eating. There is no goodness there. You are in a place where there isn't any goodness at all. The minds of these folks that choose to go here, they lose all capability to recognize good. They epitomize Isaiah 5.20. We have a large number of people, an overwhelming majority, that will look at evil and call it good and look at good and call it evil now. And we're still alive and there's still goodness here, alive physically in this temporal state. Hell, Gehenna, is being Christ is describing it as a place where there is no goodness at all. And all people are able to do is evil. This is why Christ says, Do anything it takes. Do anything. Anything that causes you to reject the sweet aroma of salvation, you should be desperate to get rid of it. If you have something in your life that is stopping you from accepting Christ and believing Christ in order to escape the consequences of your choosing to go to hell. You should cut it off. It's better to limp into heaven than to run into hell. Anything that takes you away from that, you should be desperate to remove. If you're caught in a trap, think of the wolf. The wolf will gnaw its foot off to get out. That's the way, that's the attitude we should have. With Christ, what God is saying. Choose what you have to remove so that you will choose to believe in Christ. Do what the animals will do. Again, better to enter into eternal life maimed rather than willfully go to hell with two hands. God will get you a new hand. So figure out what is causing you not to believe in Christ and cut it off. He'll get you a new one. Continuing the thought of frankincense. God smells the sweet aroma. To him, the grain offering ascends to his throne room and it is it presents the sweetness that is the salvation of someone. That's what he's doing. He's smelling salvation. And he rejoices. He loves. He's joyful over the sweet aroma of salvation. And he mourns. Over those who hate him, who choose condemnation, and he weeps for the lost. Now, having made that much progress, let's try to crack open this very difficult verse. Mark 9:49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Notice what I did there. And every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? That's a very important word, it. How will you season it? Have salt in yourself and have peace. These verses, nineteen, nine, forty-nine, and 50, they're considered by Bible scholars as very, very difficult. And, and I uh, don't disagree with them. I very rarely find somebody that... Uh, has cracked 949 and 950 correctly. And you should expect it to be very, very difficult. Who said it? Christ said it. God said it. God said, their worm will not die, and the fire is not quenched, because, you can get rid of four there, and say because, because everyone will be salted with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Whenever we read the words, Of God, we should know that they're extraordinary, they're complex, they're layered, they're infinite. You you should consider them to be a strenuous challenge. They are never simple. If I have one great frustration, it is that people come to me and tell me that they have understood the Bible. They have found it to be relatively simple. Stop that. Be wary of those who assign elementary meanings to the words of Jesus Christ. There are no elementary meanings. When Christ says something, if you think you understand it, what's likely the problem now? You've missed it all. If you say to yourself, my goodness, yeah, I understand why Christ said that. Sure, I got that. That's not a big problem. Then the chances that you have totally missed it are very high. You certainly have none of the none of the mystery of it. On its face, that kind of thinking is a disrespectful approach. And I believe that that kind of thought process that will never bear any fruit. Christ places salt, pairs it with fire. And we already know that here in mark nine forty nine, and we already know that salt is also placed with fire with Lot's wife, don't we? And we know the pillar of salt and the pillar of fire and smoke are together, right? Or the pillar of cloud and the pillar of salt are put together by the pillar aspect. We know salt and fire are linked at Leviticus 2, right here. Obviously, the second part of Mark 9.49, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt, is a direct reference to my list here. It's a direct reference to Leviticus 2.13. He says every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. He's talking about Leviticus 2.13, the salt that must be put in every sacrifice. He literally repeats it. It's almost word for word. How shall we understand because everyone will be seasoned with fire? Salt is good. I suggest that the answer to this is it. Salt is good. Salt is also eternal. It has a permanence to it. Salt is a preservative. Salt retards fire, puts out fire. Salt will not burn. We've covered that. Because, because those who reject Christ, their worm will not die. Because of that truth, every because you have to take the context, it's right before it, right? Because of the truth that everyone who rejects Christ, their worm will not die and their fire is not quenched. Because of that, everyone will be salted with fire and everyone will be seasoned with salt. Every sacrifice will have salt. To Repeat, salt is good. If salt is good, who's salt? Who else is good? Remember, he said somebody came up to him and called him good teacher. Hi, good teacher. And he said, why do you call me good? If you call Christ good, what are you calling him? God. Absolutely you are. Good is God. He says, salt is good. That's the same as saying that he could have said, I am salt. If salt is good... Salt is is typifying God, and God is salt. And, and he says, "So we'll keep that. In mind. Have salt in yourselves." He could have easily have said, "Had me in yourself." If I am good, I am salt. Have me in yourself, and have peace. Does that make sense? If you have Christ, do you have peace? Who do you have peace with? You have peace with Him. With God. Sentence makes very good sense that way. I am peace. He's the prince of peace, Isaiah 9.6. Salt brings peace. But if the salt loses favor, how will you season it? Season what? What does the it refer back to? Let me read the sentence again. And every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Is it referring to salt? Do I season salt? Let me ask this question. I said to you, season fire. Every fire will be seasoned. Or the fire is seasoned. Let me get it perfectly right. Everyone will be seasoned with fire. And I said, everyone will be salted with fire. Every sacrifice will be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you salt it? If I start intermingling or substituting season and salt, if I say to you, I'm seasoning the popcorn, what am I doing with it? I am salting it. How do I salt the salt? How will you salt it? How will you season salt? The salt loses its flavor. How will you resalt it? How will you restore its salt? Is that how you will interpret that? Or could it also be every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt? Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season the sacrifice? Does the "it" refer back to the sacrifice? I think it's best understood as Christ saying, "If I am not God, there is no salvation." And I know people will say, "How did you get there?" I'll get letters. How did you get from seasoning salt and salt is good and all of that to Christ saying, if I am not God, there is no salvation. See, if the salt is not eternal God, if the salt is not always salt, if the salt could lose its flavor, then it's impossible to save anything. Does that make sense? Salt salt is good. Salt can't lose its flavor. Because if it could, then no one can be saved. If you ever have a position that Christ is not God, then there is no salvation. You've heard me say that many, many times. The adding of salt, salt does not work unless salt is forever. And salt is forever and salt is good because salt is God in this, in this uh, um, example. Salt must be good. Salt must always be salt. So next week, we endeavor to solve. Everyone is Salted with fire. What does that mean? Obviously, it's everyone. And it's because the worm does not die. And we'll do more worms. Or maggots, whichever you prefer. We have the crimson worms to deal with. Let's rise and be dismissed.